0: This morning, as Sheila and I were getting ready for breakfast, I had the privilege of hearing a little bit of Isaiah 55, because Sheila, together with some other women, have determined that they are going to memorize Isaiah 55 as a chapter. And memorization of Scripture doesn't come easily or naturally to Sheila. So with her own unique style, which is about one-third rap, about one-third charades, and about one-third dancing, she delivered this beautifully choreographed recital of Isaiah 55. So as she works her way through and gets to completion of that chapter, I'm trying to convince her, let me make a video of this so I can post this on the Bridge Builder site and share some of this. So it was a great way to start. And I am delighted to see Barry and Sue here this morning. I have missed the two of you, as I'm sure many of us have. So it's it's really nice to see you here. So this is the, uh, the second part of the message, Blessed Unforgiveness, When Love Can't Forgive. And in the first part, we took a look at the fact that Jesus, in the Gospel of Matthew, in two different portions of that Gospel, said that there were certain circumstances, certain occasions, where God would not forgive us. And the first one was directly after what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, where He says, if you don't forgive others... Their trespasses, their sins, their debts, their failures. Neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. And we found that one of the benefits, as Jay rightly identified on on our Bridge Builders site, one of the benefits of forgiveness is freedom. That there is a freedom that God wants us to have in forgiveness. And with that freedom, we have an opportunity to restore a relationship. And I believe that that is the great goal of forgiveness. A restoration of a relationship. And we saw where, with unforgiveness towards our fellow man, the neighbor that God draws near, there is this rift. We shut that individual out of our portion of the universe that we are a part of, where we throttle love. And that a loving God who desires us to be perfect, to be conformed to the image of Christ and to be like Him, is not sitting back saying, I will not forgive you. His love is active. It's reaching out. It is transforming And his love would, in fact, if he could forgive us in our unforgiving condition, would mean nothing. That it would imply that we have a right to sit there in our unforgiveness, a right to hate our brother, a right to throttle what love wants to accomplish in our life, a right to stay in that mood. And so, the Lord, because He loves us, because He loves according to our needs and not according to merits, works His forgiveness. But it can't be called complete until it accomplishes its end. And so, in that case where we will not forgive our brother as we have been forgiven by God, the forgiveness remains incomplete. And so, as we move to the second occasion where Jesus is talking about unforgiveness, it changes from a relationship between men and women and men and women to our relationship with God. And so, let me relate a little bit of the story of the 12th chapter of Matthew in which this second occasion is contained. And we find Jesus walking through a grain field with His disciples. And they're hungry. And so they are picking some ears of grain and they're feeding their hunger with these kernels of grain. And the Pharisees observe this activity and they question Jesus. And they say, Why are your disciples doing what isn't right, what isn't lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus comes back with a response and he says, Don't you remember David and how when he and his men were hungry, they went into the house of God and they ate presentation loaves that were only lawful for the priests to eat, that they had no right to. Don't you remember that? The law, as it's presented to us, is made up of words. The words themselves are not the truth. They are representations of the truth. The truth lies deeper underneath the words. The truth is living. And what David knew at that time was that his heart had a reverence and a love for God and that His heavenly Father knew their genuine need. He was not being irreverent toward His heavenly Father. He saw into the law, into the part of the law that gave life, the spirit of the law, where life lives, not on the surface of the law where the Word kills. So Jesus goes and He is in now, He is in the temple And these Pharisees confront him again. And they show him a man with a withered hand. And they ask Jesus, is it right to heal on the Sabbath? We're going to press this point. And Jesus shares with them, you know, which of you might have an animal that falls into a pit that wouldn't lift that animal out? Yeah, it's right to do good on the Sabbath. And he turns to the man with a shriveled hand and he says to him, stretch out your hand. And in the obedience, in the willing, in the trying, in the heart that responds to God's invitation, he stretches out his hand And he's healed. And I love how God gives us something to do. Stretch out your hand. It might be as small as that. And in our heart, we begin to obey. And with the beginning of obedience, there comes a blessing. And so Jesus shows them. He ratchets it it up a bit. And he shows them that it's, it's good and lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And they take that and they begin to plot how they can do away with Him. So He slides out of the temple and there are large crowds following Him. And it says that Jesus is healing them all. So every ratchet of His illustration to the Pharisees on doing good on the Sabbath goes up a notch. And He's healing them all. And... Finally, he is taken to a place where there is a man who is possessed with a a demon, with a devil. And Jesus cures that man because that man is both blind and he's deaf. He lives in terrible darkness and terrible bondage. He's blind, and he is deaf. And so Jesus casts the devil out of this man. And the response of the Pharisees at this point is to say that that action has been done by the fact that Jesus is in cahoots with Beelzebub that has happened because he is part of Satan's kingdom. And it is after this proclamation that Jesus speaks about a sin. I almost got away with not having to wear my glasses here. Got to, that Jesus speaks about something that cannot be forgiven by God. He says to them, and if I expel devils because I'm an ally of Beelzebub, what alliance do your sons make when they do the same thing? They can settle that question for you. But if I am expelling devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is already swept over you. How do you suppose anyone could get into a strong man's house and steal his property unless he first tied up the strong man? But if he did that, he could ransack his whole house. The man who is not on my side is against me. And the man who does not gather with me is really scattering. That is why I tell you that men may be forgiven for every sin and blasphemy. A blasphemy against the Spirit cannot be forgiven. A man may say a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven either in this world or in the world to come. Some translations, in this age or in the age to come. In the Greek, in this age or that to come. So he points out that condition. And we hear about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit being popularly described as the unforgivable sin. And yet, there isn't a sin that exists that's forgivable. And sometimes it's been Attempted to be described in terms of actions. But I think that actions, as someone else has said before me, actions are the dead husks of our live sins. That our live sins are in our heart. That these conditions that Jesus is talking about, both of them, have much to do with the spiritual condition of our heart. And what we see on the outside are just the dead husks of the lie sins. You could have a person who is a paraplegic, I believe, who could be far more of a sexually immoral man than someone who committed many, many acts. You could have someone who is a paraplegic, who is a greater thief, who is a greater liar, because the things come from our heart. And that's why I gave thanks this morning for trials, because these trials that each one of us has, and I love how Tim was reassuring us, encouraging us to understand that things are relative. Our story is our story. Our trial is our trial. The thing that God has for us that squeezes our heart so that we can see what comes up out of our heart, to see if our faith is genuine or not. It's the trials that let us know. We can we can sit and believing our faith is strong, but it is not until we hit our trials that we see what comes up out of our hearts and we get an opportunity to take a look. I remember C.S. Lewis when his wife succumbed to cancer. And he wrote a book, The Grief Observed. A Grief Observed. And in it he said something to the effect that my faith is like a my faith has been a house of cards, and it has fallen. And he pours out all the ugly mess of sorts as this man battles with doubt, with concern. And so God is far more concerned not with the external aspects, but with the heart. I remember another man who preached that i listened to years and years ago. He was a visiting evangelist of sorts and he said, you can tell Christians not by their actions because they can plan their actions. Their validity is from their reactions because they cannot plan that. And I appreciate that. And so what is this about this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? this slander against the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke about. I liken it to, and again, we peer into Scripture, certainly some parts of Scripture, through the glass darkly. I do not have all the answers on this one, that's for sure. But I think God means us to try. He says many a hard thing, but he means us to wrestle with it. He means us to peer in, to look. He means us to help each other to look. And so I I give my conjecture. And I pray your help, your benefit, either at the end of of my speaking or on on our Bridge Builders site or anything, to broaden the conversation to help each other look, to help each other see. And what I see from the context of this is that there is a difference between disbelief and disavow. That a man may listen even to the words of God, may see things that God has brought about, and disbelief either from stubbornness, foolishness, many different circumstances, but his disbelief or her disbelief is an honest one. I simply don't believe. And disavow where in the heart, where only God knows, where God can see, there is a portion of light, there is a portion of truth, where a man or a woman takes that light that they've been given, which we know, which we see, and turns, and with their will, with a choice of the heart, disavows. These Pharisees are seeing, lived out in front of them, a good man doing good things. And I believe that a portion of them or a part of their heart knew that He was good. That saw that these things were good. And not from disbelief, but from a purpose, choice of heart, a disavow. They turned from that light and they called what was good, evil. This act that was done by the Spirit of God. And I even find that intriguing. Jesus said, I cast this devil out by the Spirit of God. They see that and they attribute that to a work of Satan. They turn the world upside down and call good evil and evil good. And so, in my opinion, a part of that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that slander against the Holy Spirit, is this difference between disbelief and disavow. Where we take the truth that we know to be true, what portion of it we have in our hearts, and we give it a willful turn. And that part, God only knows. Now, the next intriguing aspect of things is whether or not that condition be permanent. What happens if, in either case, I choose not to forgive my brother or sister when they sin against me? Or I am guilty of disavowing, I am guilty of slandering the Holy Spirit of God. Is that a permanent thing? What happens even if I draw my last breath in such a condition. And I think about that as I ponder that. And I think about... I always go back to two things. I go back to, I go back to 1 Corinthians where I'm so captured by this aspect of love that love never fails. And failure can be construed as never runs out or never falls short or never ceases. Love never fails to accomplish its objective. And I think about the fact that Jesus came to reveal the Father. That even John the Baptist said, I wouldn't have recognized Him except that I was told that the One on whom you see the Holy Spirit come and remain on, He is the One. Because you can pack all the words of the Old Testament in your heart and mind, and you could, if I lived back in Jesus' day, I might have suspected a far different Messiah. And so when Jesus comes and He reveals the Father, He shows the Father to us, I find nothing that Jesus ever said or did that is apart from love. Never anything He did or said that didn't have a redemptive purpose to it. And so I hope, I desire at some point in time, not this morning, but maybe at some point in time in the future, if I have an invitation to speak again, to speak about something long on my heart that has to do with What happens to someone like poor Judas who hung himself? What happens to folks that we love who perhaps, as far as we can tell, draw their last breath with an unforgiving attitude? Who draw their last breath with a disavowal of the Spirit of God? How does that fit into a loving God who will go to at whatever lengths possible possible to redeem and rescue us. So, I want to end with with two endings. One was, when I thought about the, uh, the man that Jesus drove the devil out who could neither see nor hear it brought somebody to mind some more contemporary historical figure. Anybody take a guess? Is there anybody you know that or heard about in somewhat modern history that could neither see nor hear? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Helen Keller. Great. Thanks, Dustin, because that's that's exactly right. Could neither see nor hear. And there's been some fascinating books and some uh, a fascinating movie. But Helen Keller has many things that she has said that are beautiful quotes. Beautiful quotes. And what God chose to enter or reveal Himself in her life. Because, in my opinion, there is no contradiction between the glory of God and the good of his people. She went on to say, I believe that God is in me as the sun is in the color and fragrance of a flower, the light, capital L, in my darkness, the voice, capital V, in my silence. I believe that God is in me as the sun is in the color and fragrance of a flower, the light in my darkness, the voice in my silence. So with a, a few minutes, I think, that we have remaining, I never can tell what time we, we are on. Let me see. We're good? Jay says we're good. And this might be a little... And Jay's done this before, too, and I think Tim as well. Uh, If there's any thoughts that you have, any questions that you have, any insights that you can share, let's just take the the last five, ten minutes and share them. So if anybody... And I learned this from Mike Ferretti, who does this so well when he's helping us sing. He waits with a good, calm patience... Good kind of patience.
1: Aye. Right.
0: A process.
1: I <laughs>
0: Yeah, a refresher. Me too. different forms of forgiveness I think you know in the uh, there are some times when you know we need the discernment of the spirit to understand how can I reach out to this person how can I participate with God to take away that which stands between me and another person because the form that it takes the form that our love towards the unlovely needs to take needs discernment If I've been in an abusive situation in marriage, the form may certainly need to be prayer. You know, that may be the boundary. So we we have to discern.
1: See, in in my story with my abusive father, I think I've seen the person living out the father, My father always believed in God but he hated God. And we speak about that hate constantly about how much he hated God. And there was, when I became a Christian in the midst of his abuse, that increased the hatred towards God to a degree that was unbelievable. And to, to actually understand that the difference between uh, a disbelief and a disavowing. See, so my father purposely disavowed his uh, a, a potential relationship with Father God and was uh, vocal about this. And my father wasn't a vocal person, but he was vocal about this one thing. When I forgave him, when we had this moment of, uh, of, of almost physical confrontation, it was it was a physical confrontation, but I chose to forgive him in this, in this thing. Uh, his vocalization of that hatred lesson, Although he never verbally announced any kind of desire to connect with God. Or to be forgiven by God. Yet somehow, and he died alone in his house. But somehow I have hope. Then in that fraction of time that is between our last breath, our last words and eternity, that God speaks there. Because God lives outside of time. And if he exists out of time, then anything is possible. And there is a moment there that I think God is continuously pouring out his love that says, here's your day of salvation. It's this moment. It's this moment in, in endless time. What will you do with my son Jesus? And so, that's where I look at it when you share that. And I've personally experienced that kind of person for many years.
0: Father, thank you for this opportunity to be together this morning. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your love that will never let us remain where we are. Love will make us perfect. We are here in our mortal lives, homeschool at your hands. You are our Heavenly Father. And you have come in the person of your Son to rescue and to set free. That we might learn how to love God first and our neighbor as ourselves. Work in us to will and to do of Your good pleasure. For the glory of Your name. Amen.